Howdy, everyone. Before we get into today's show, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors, Our Crowd and Ledger. Genuinely love both these companies. Proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them from me later. But for now, on with the program. December 2018 and March of 2020. And that's when you saw stocks and bonds go down together. And that's where things really got crazy. So you have stocks and bonds going up and down together in price. For a 60-40 portfolio, I guess that'd be bad, but whatever. I mean, you know, it's unlevered. It's an asset that goes up and down. Um, For a levered portfolio, that's nuclear war. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by co-host Jack Farley. Very, very excited about that. And Mr. Harley Bassman of Simplify Asset Management. Welcome, gentlemen. Very excited to do this. Hello. Good morning. Great to be here. Awesome. Uh, so let's just get right into it here uh, with a series of charts uh, that you guys helped helpfully prepared here. Um, so let me know if you guys can see my screen. Yep. Yay. Perfect. Um, so Harley, I thought we'd just actually start here. Um, and I, I was actually hoping you could do almost like a, a basic definition of terms uh, for the uninitiated here. So I know you're the uh, creator or the inventor of the move index, but um, I, you know, your name on, on Twitter is the convexity maven. Uh, right. Um, so I, I was hoping you kind of break down this idea of like, what is the move index? And if you could talk about the, uh, the convexity, the, the, what is convexity? What is implied volatility and what we should be uh, thinking about when we're looking at this chart here? Okay, sure. Um, well, in a nutshell, describing convexity to, to mom is if you have some kind of bet, could be a stock, could be a bond, could be anything. And if you think under equal and opposite, you know, changes, it goes up by one and down by one, that's zero convexity. If it goes up by two and down by one, that's positive convexity. You make more than you lose. And maybe down by three, up by two, that's negative convexity. And what, um, I mean, technically, convexity is a second derivative. That's just too complicated for people. Um, just think of it as unbalanced leverage, unbalanced movement. And, and, and that's what it's all about. And then what you then look at when you have securities or other, you know, I'll call them bets. Although at Wall Street, we hate talking about gambling. Um, we try to price what that bet is worth. And up and down one for one bets worth zero, effectively, because it's, it's a coin toss. And, and then as you know, it changes, you invest otherwise. Uh, implied volatility is basically measuring the distribution of all these possible outcomes. And I created the move index almost, you know, at the same time that the VIX came out. Uh, when the VIX came out, it was like, wow, this is a clever idea. It's a way of expressing volatility to civilians, the common man. So you can look at one number and have an idea of, okay, is it high or low? What's, what's going on? And um, the VIX is looking forward 30 days. Uh, we might talk about the composition of it if, we, if, we, if you're going to get technical. The move is is is, is, is um, functionally similar. It is a index of uh, one month options on interest rates, and it's a blended combination of one month options on the two year, five year, ten year, and thirty year treasury. That's it. Um, the number actually is a real number. It's not some scaled concept. So uh, a VIX of eighty. Um, means that we think, or the market thinks, or the market's estimating or projecting or fearful of that rates will be up or down 80 basis points 
one year from now in a 68% probability, mm-hmm. which is classic stat 101, one standard deviation. Um, you can take that 80 and roll it back to a one day, because the 80 is an annual 68%. I can divide by 16, which is the square root of 252, number of trading days per year, and that's the daily expected movement of 68%. So 80 divided by 16, roughly five basis points a day, and that's kind of where we are right now. We're like 70-something, low 80s, high 70s, and the market's basically saying that for the next month, we're going to kind of move five bips a day, which we kind of have been. So that's all it means. And you can see from this chart here how it can get pretty high um, uh, when the time's right. What's, 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 what's very strange is that prior to the great financial crisis, we averaged about 100. It went from like 80 to 120 back and forth. Since the GFC, we've been ranging between like 60 and, 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 and 100. Um, uh, it may be even less than that. And that's basically the Fed's actively suppressing volatility as part of their financial plan. I've got two questions right off the bat, Harley. Number one, uh, does this apply to interest rates all across the yield curve or is it about a specific maturity of 10 years? And my second question is, I know that the VIX regularly trades above, uh, you know, um, uh, realized volatility and implied volatility is generally higher. Do you find that in interest rates as well, where uh, the market prices in a higher uh, level of volatility than it, it ultimately realizes, um, and and why? That's more like two or three or four questions, but <laughs> we'll, we'll get to them. The move is a blend of options on the two-year, five-year, 10-year, and 30-year. The reason why the move jumped from high 50s, low 60s to mid-70s a couple months ago is because up until then, the two-year and the five-year components of the move were trading at like 25 and 35, uh, whereas the 10-year and 30-year were in the you know 70s and 80s. And when you blend them together, you'd get 60-ish. Um, when the Fed said, okay, we're going to start thinking about thinking about stuff, all of a sudden, the two-year and the five-year components, they, they went live again. The Fed was no longer holding them down. There was now uncertainty. So now all four of those components were kicking in at about the 70-ish area. And that's why the move jumped so much um, uh, recently. Um, as far as the VIX goes, two questions. One is implied vol and one's realized vol. And then there's the VIX. Yep, yep. In general, you will see implied volatility on short-dated options, one to three months, trade about 8 to 12% over realized vol. And that's why you see so many funds out there, hedge funds and other types of speculators, will sell continuously one-month options and then delta hedge every day. Let's skip delta hedging for now as a concept. It's a way of capturing that difference. And theoretically, if you sell vol one month every day and hedge it every day, you're going to go reap that 8 to 12% uh, premium. And there are some big, very big funds out there, multi-billion dollar funds that do this trade all the time, which is why you see constant pressure on the one-month option. That's why it trades so low relative to other 3, 6, 12-month options out there. There's this massive sell pressure 
um, but it still is, you know, call it 10% over. Now, the VIX is not, is not the implied volatility of a one-month option. The move is. The VIX is not. It's a blend of all the options from way out of the money to way in the money. The whole, whole term, the whole surface of skew. And because there's a smile, right? Like out of the money puts trade much higher than at the money options. That's why the VIX trades over implied vol. So a simple example is you might have realized vol of 10 and at the money vol of 12 and then a VIX of 16. That spread of the VIX over um, the implied vol used to be two to three points. Now it's four to five points. So you have a very big spread now. And that's because you now have skew on both the put and the call. It used to be that a put would trade to a, an out of the money put would be a higher vol than out the money and the call would be a lower. You now have both calls and puts out of the money trading up because of you know what's going on the, all the, the, the Tesla, Amazon, uh, Google, that explode higher in price, have, have made risk on both sides of the market rather phenomenal. The old expression was stocks that go up on an escalator and down on an elevator, or actually they just fall off a cliff. Um, <laughs> they seem to, stocks seem to move uh, very large moves both ways now. So that's changed the, 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 the pricing dynamic and elevated the VIX relative to the ordinary at the money option. So Harley, you know, when looking at this chart, uh, you can really see vol or implied volatility, I guess, is measured by moves spiking around periods of, uh, let's say, market big market dislocations, right? So, uh, you know, we called out the great financial crisis here. You can also kind of look back to the dot-com era uh, and see a lot of volatility there. You know, to your point before, I'm very curious because it, it does look like, um, you know, to the untrained eye like, like me looking at this chart, uh, that volatility has been suppressed, let's say, or certainly lower uh, compared to historic levels um, within the last, let's say, 2012 onward. Uh, and you mentioned the involvement of central banks in that. Why are we seeing lower levels of volatility in general? What's the involvement with central banking? The, 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 the biggest issue in the last 10 years has been that rates have been reduced dramatically. You used to see, you know, back in prior times, the 10 year was averaging five, 6% for 20 years. Um, if you're at a 6% rate, you can go, in theory, I guess, down 600 or up infinite. So you can move both ways a lot. When you put the 10-year at 1.5%, and I will state for the record here, you will never see negative rates in the U.S., ever. Hmm. Um, I mean, you can see them in T-bills as flights of quality, but in general, you're not going to see negative rates in the U.S. We're the world's reserve currency. We just can't have negative rates. It would disintermediate them the banking system which runs the world now. So that just can't happen. Um, so basically what you're saying is in the 10 year, now you can only go down 150, but still up 600, let's say. That's why you've seen volatility come down so dramatically is you've basically wiped out the entire, on the right side of the distribution, left side, whatever you want to call it, of rates going lower because of the zero boundary. If rates went back up to four or 5%, you would see all volatilities rise because now you had you could go either way a lot. You haven't clipped the distribution. Um, that's number one. Number two is the Fed has intentionally suppressed volatility as a way to get the economy picking up speed so people will take risk 
to uh, either to, um, to, 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 to buy risky assets, which would then fund risky ventures. So mm-hmm. the reason why you might see, you know, venture capital doing so well now is that if cash is trading at, you know, 25 basis points, then owning cash is kind of worthless. I might as well put it somewhere and take more risk. That was part of the plan. That was an accident. Taking rates down, short-term rates first with the front end, long-term rates second via QE, pulling that down. You force money out of safe assets into risky assets to, in theory, enliven animal spirits and get the economy rolling. So uh, that, 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 that's, it's a feature, not a bug. So, you know, I guess then one of the things that this makes me think about, so here we're showing, here showing some charts about uh, money supply expansion. Um, I mean, this, this chart is pretty nuts um, in general, I would say. Uh, but, you know, as we've seen, you know, the Federal Reserve kind of pump money into the system. And I know that that's, that's not really mechanically what's happening, right? Usually when you talk about QE, you're talking about an asset swap in between uh, reserves and treasuries. Um, but that has actually led to a huge decline, a collapse in M2 velocity in general. And, you know, we're talking about this on December 10th, right? So the inflation print just came out uh, in the U.S. for November. It was 6.8%. That was the highest that it's been in, I believe, 39 or so years. Uh, There's some particularly crazy stats around energy. I think I I read that oil is up like 58% um, since this time year over year, uh, November pricing. So I guess, you know, my question would be if the reduction in volatility to encourage investors to move out on the risk spectrum is a feature and not a bug. If inflation continues to stay where it's at, doesn't that almost necessarily involve reversing this policy, right? Eventually, the Federal Reserve is going to have to respond to what's going on to inflation. And they would seem like that would actually unwind that kind of suppressing of volatility in general. Do you agree with that sentiment overall? Or what are your thoughts there? I would roll to the next slide, which is mm-hmm. actually very informative. Um, so the, 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 the plan was to look, People argue is um, you know QE printing money. Um, I think it is. I, I guess you could argue otherwise in theory, but I mean, come on, man. There, I mean, there's money being created and put in the system, and the the, the uh, notion that there's been no inflation uh, up until you know this last you know six months or a year is just totally bogus. There's been massive, massive inflation. It's just not in wages or in CPI. It's been in assets. It's been stocks and bonds and cars and gold and paintings and houses and everything's gone straight up. And this chart just shows it right here. It's, it's a, I'm not quite a one-for-one link, but, but that's what it is. The money was printed. It was put in the system. And then the money then, unfortunately, went to people who have assets, which has created income disparity, which, of mm-hmm. course, uh, is, a, is, a, is a bad public policy result. Um, and so the money got put in. The M2 went up. Velocity is not a number per se. It's the, it's the back end of the horse. And so if GDP doesn't move and M goes up, then by definition, V goes down to keep the, the formula uh, constant. Um, what's changed is we finally um, put fiscal policy into effect. Um, mm. And uh, I, mean, you know, I mean, Trump did this with his spending, with his tax cuts. I won't say good or bad, it's just a fact. And then COVID, really, we put in more fiscal power, the government spending money, giving money to people, not to investors, what the Fed did. The Fed hoped it would bleed on in, but it didn't. We're now giving money directly to people who will spend. Um, One of the most depressing 
bad statistics from a few years ago is that 40%, 40% of people do not have $400 in their pocket for an emergency. Car breaks down, they can't get to work. Washing machine, health issue. I mean, that is, like, that is utterly incredible. 40% of the people cannot scrounge up $400 for, you know, uh, an emergency. I mean, that, that, that's, that's your barbell at the club, man. And these guys can't do that. These people have a problem. There's a problem here. When the Fed, when the fiscal federal government puts money into people's pockets, that money gets spent. And that's what you're seeing right now is this money being spent. And that's why you're seeing GDP and inflation. We have exploded aggregate demand, whereas supply has been constricted for two reasons. One, supply chain, which is obvious. The other one is more interesting, which is basically because of COVID, people left the workforce, mostly involuntarily, but nonetheless, they were taken out of the office. And a lot of people have said, you know what? I'm not going back or I'm going to do something else. And that's actually very interesting, especially for the boomer population who they weren't going to quit because you just... No one likes change, okay? You're doing your job, you're going to work every day, you'll do it till you drop dead. All of a sudden you're back at home and your stock portfolio is doubled. Eh, you know, I kind of hit my number. I kind of like this being in my jammies all day long. I'm not gonna show you what I'm wearing underneath this shirt. Um, so, uh, and this is what we've seen is this hole of three to four million people who've not gone back to work. Participation rate has gone down and ain't coming back. So um, that's where the real hole is right now in the supply chain. Uh, and since immigration has been totally bottlenecked, once again, is that good public policy? Do you want to go fight, you know, who's a citizen, who's not a citizen? Be my guest. But the cold reality is labor force growth rate is the key driver of the economy. And if we go and plug people coming in to this country via immigration, you've got a big problem. You want to see what's wrong with Japan and Western Europe? It's they have no immigration and they have labor force shrinkage. That's why they're collapsing. The U.S. has always gotten around this by immigration, legal or otherwise. So that's what's happening here. Yeah, Harley, uh, we were showing now the chart of workforce growth leading by five years in blue and 10-year yield in orange. I know you typically have a, a more refined a name for the colors. Can you explain the, the relationship between the two and, and you know what that could mean for, for rates going forward? Uh, this is probably the best chart I have of anything. Uh, it is the, 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 the foundation of everything I think about, which is that demographics drive everything that the fed and the federal government can maneuver policies around but at the end of the day it's the demographic what you saw in the 70s and early 80s was yes there was a guns and butter problem with johnson great society vietnam war um, that created all this spending that people will point to the cold reality is the baby boomer generation grew up in the late, uh, late 70s, early 80s. That's when they got married, they had kids, they bought a house, they bought a car, they bought a washing machine. There was this massive demand from household formation of the baby boom generation, demanding goods from a much smaller generation behind them, many of which who died in the war. So um, 
that was what drove this thing up. And since then, as the boomers have gone through, um, you had this decline in the labor force growth rate and a decline in interest rates. What you see in this chart is we should see starting in starting two years from now, 2023, and I've been talking about this for you know eight years now, the demographic is baked in the cake. There's not much to think about. We're not Benjamin Button going backwards in time. And what you're going to see at two years from now is this inflection point between the millennials entering the workforce, getting married, having kids, buying houses, and the boomers retiring and leaving the workforce. What's interesting is it's possible that COVID accelerated this process, of not of millennials coming in, but of boomers mm. going out. Um, and that's a possibility. Um, so that's, uh, I, 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 I love this chart. I, I, I believe that there's people who push back and, and, and look at the more macro demographic in the US, which is not growing that much. I'm looking more at the micro and thinking about who is actually retiring and who is actually entering the workforce. Uh, this is the pig in the python. We will see, you know, whether it works or not. Yeah, I love I love the the emphasis, Harley, on demographics in general. Uh, so to just kind of you know square the circle of what we're talking about here, right? Um, you know, to to frame this within the context of are we headed towards an environment of secular inflation or one of deflation? You know, I think the the pro inflationary environment is that. Look, uh, to your point, I also believe that. Um, growth in M1 side. We've been doing money printing, right? And I understand that technically it's an asset swap, whatever, whatever. Just look at a chart. Clearly something is, ha clearly something is happening, right? There's probably best not even overthink it. Uh, I, I think there's been a lot of uh, creation in, of money supply. Um, I also think these bottlenecks in, in supply chains, who knows? Uh, they've certainly created a psychology of inflation. Uh, there's a pretty nuts statistic in the Wall Street Journal's coverage of this piece, which is like 80% of companies that they surveyed uh, expected uh, or, um, reported a an increase in in labor costs in general so they're pretty strong uh I, there's a pretty strong argument i'd say for an environment of secular inflation on the other hand uh for deflation there's kind of that three d's right which is um debt demographics and uh i'm blanking on the third one but I, i've always tended to put a lot of emphasis on demographics uh when it comes to inflation and not to derail us too much here but if you want a little interesting little history lesson if you want to go back you know people cite this statistic about China raising 850 million people out of poverty. Well, that actually started at the beginning of something called the Cultural Revolution, which was like an absolutely horrendous uh, period of time in China's history, um, uh, you know, where they tried to basically transition from an agrarian society to an industrial one. Uh, and the policy choices were so, so bad for the economy in general. It's like transition from, you know, uh, farming to like everyone just creating steel, like in their backyards. I mean, it's really ridiculous. But the one thing they did get right was they increased their population to such a degree that it actually led to, you know, st structural growth. Um, so I, I tell that story because I do feel like that's the prevailing trend for what actually creates structural growth. And now you just have a not great demographic looking scene in the U.S. This is my super long rambling way of saying <laughs> You know, when you look out over the next five years, I think there, you can make a very intelligent argument for both an inflationary, a secular inflation environment and a deflationary one. Where do you see us going from here? Um, look, I'm in the inflation camp, not crazy inflation, not hyperinflation, but, you know, above two, you know, four, I think it's pretty easy. Um, and it'll, it'll be there for a while, a number of years. That's, that's kind of view of the world. About the China thing, if you actually take your story and roll it ahead a little bit, uh, China's going to go and economically implode in the next 30 years because this population growth up to 1.1, yeah. I think it's 1.1, 1.2 uh, billion people, 
uh, I believe collapses to 700 million uh, 30 years from now because of the one child policy, which once again is baked in the cake and can't be fixed. Um, and, and, and that demographic is, is rather uh, startling. And how they're going to go deal with that, I guess, is they're, uh, they're going to cross the bear going forward. Yeah, exactly. And China's, the huge growth in China's working age population in the 70s, 80s, 90s, was that inflationary? No, it actually exported deflation around the world because companies could offshore a lot of their labor costs to China. So actually their, quote, bad demographics could be inflationary for the, the world. Uh, Harley, I want to take a little bit of a pivot and ask you about the past 40 years uh, of of disinflation, uh, of declining bond yields, has been a very particular environment in which a strategy worked. Uh, namely, you own 60% stocks, you own 40% bonds. Stocks make a lot of money, bonds make a little bit. But when stocks go down, bond yields will go down too. So there's a positive correlation with yields, a negative correlation between stock price and bond price. You have a fascinating chart that I actually, I may like even more than the chart we just were showing, which shows the relationship uh, between the stock bond correlation and inflation. And this, this stock is, this chart is a little bit hard to understand, but I think if people view this and understand just how important it is, uh, I, I think that would be great. So yeah, just talk about uh, this relationship and um, you know, then, then there's risk parity on top of 6040. Yeah, this chart and the one before might be even easier to read. Um, so uh, what you've seen, if you look at, this is correlations, it's statistics. So every you know, uh, Wall Street firm has the same chart. Um, and what that chart shows is that if you have inflation below two and a half-ish, you have interest rates you know, below four, four and a quarter, four and a half, somewhere in there. What you have seen historically is that stocks and bonds, their prices move in opposite directions. So they hedge each other, stocks up, bonds down, and vice versa. And thus, a 60-40 portfolio, aside from just being, you know, functionally diversified, which is a good thing, is also somewhat self-hedging, which reduces its volatility of return. Um, what we've had in the last, you know, 40 years of stocks up and bonds up in prices, even though day-to-day, -day they they, the day-to-day -day correlation has been negative, but they've been slowly ticking on up, is if you're in a levered portfolio, a la Bridgewater Ray Dalio, who invented this risk parity function, where, as a reminder, you have $100, you then go and take, um, uh, you borrow 100, 100 more, now you have 200, you invest 130 in bonds, usually the TY contract, 10-year contract on the exchange, and you put 70 in stocks, so SPX, SPY, and that portfolio has done extraordinarily well for the last, you know, 20 years. What, however, might happen if rates were to go up above four and change or inflation above, you know, two, two, three and change is that correlation in theory would flip. So you have stocks and bonds going up and down together in price. Um, for a 60-40 portfolio, I guess that'd be bad, but whatever. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, it's unlevered. It's an asset that goes up and down. Um, for a levered portfolio, that's nuclear war. And we have seen twice in the last few years where this correlation has gone back to the 
prior world of they go together in price. That was December of 2018 and March of 2020. And that's when you saw stocks and bonds go down together. And that's where things really got crazy. And what did the Fed do? They ran in to save the day, both times. Because what was happening is if they go down together and you've levered money, right? You have $200 of assets supported by $100 of, 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 of money, of capital. Um, you get margin called and you just got to rush to the exits. And the Fed had to stop that. So this is the big worry. Um, will we get this scenario? I don't know. I'm just telling you that if we do get rates up, so I'm not saying rates will go up. What I'm saying definitively is if rates do go up, so you get that 10 year above, you know, three and a half, bond above four, you're going to see this correlation go to, in sync. And that's going to be a disaster for a levered financial economy, uh, which is why it's possible the Fed may just cap rates. That we might get that I might be dead right on the 4% inflation and the Fed will just keep rates pinned down there to prevent this from happening. Um, this is why, you know, I, 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 I own various hedges against rates rising because that would be a financial disaster. Um, you don't buy fire insurance because you think your house is going to burn down. You buy it because if your house burns down, you've got a real problem. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it from my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software it syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And... Stay tuned. I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Aave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd takes a global bird's eye view of private markets and brings the companies with the greatest growth potential to you to invest in. One of my favorite quotes from Jim Bianco is when he says, I hate it when people tell me to invest like Warren Buffett. I wish I could invest like that guy. He sees all the best deals. Well, our crowd is addressing exactly that issue by bringing private companies to you when you can take advantage of them, i.e. when they're still early. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many have benefited from the 46 uh, IPOs or otherwise sale exits that they've experienced on the platform. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash OTM. Again, that is ourcrowd.com slash OTM. If you take one thing away from this, be it that you should include OTM when you join our crowd. We'll see you soon. 
Yeah, Harley, let's get into those hedges. If people think that uh, rates will go up and that will be very bad for them, they can buy fire insurance, as you say. Some people might, let's say, buy a put option on something like TLT. That's sort of the the retail way to do it, the civilian way to do it. You uh, have a much more sophisticated way. You're looking, I believe, like the seven-year option on a 20-year bond. And I believe that is, a, you know, comprises PFIX, which is an ETF you have at Simplify. Tell us why you prefer that way of expressing the trade and the advantages of that maneuver as you see it. Well, I would never mention any ticker on a program, but um, if you want to describe what we call the Simplify uh, interest rate hedge, um, which is made up of basically a five-year treasury and a seven-year option, let's just forget all the nonsense. What we've done over here is we've allowed, there is a whole host of amazing financial instruments available to professionals. You need what's called an ISDA, I-S-D-A agreement, which is the deal that people have between, you know, a hedge fund, a Wall Street dealer, a corporation, is to do these derivatives. And they're basically, they're not on an exchange. They are principal to principal. I have a direct deal with Goldman Sachs or Merrill Lynch, something like that. Um, and they're challenging to get for civilians. I, I happen to own one for myself, but I'm, I'm a, a little bit exceptional in that case. What we did was we put this, put a seven-year option on effectively the 30-year treasury, seven-year put option into an ETF. So civilians can trade them, you know, right on the screen. Um, and because it's a seven-year option, the theta, the bleed on it is very, very slow. Think about this. If you have a, have a, a, a two-year option, after one year, you've lost half the time. You have a seven-year option, you've lost one year, you only lost one-seventh of the time. So the theta, the bleed is very slow. I don't, I've already said that I think that you're, if we have the problem via demographics that drive rates higher, it's going to be two years from now in 2023. But I don't, but markets tend to move well before the event happens. So I kind of know what's going to happen. I'm not sure when. That's why I want to buy a very long dated option um, to go and basically lock in the protection now uh, and be able to carry it. If you start buying you know, three-month, six-month put options on any of these TLT or on the bond contract, the 10-year contract, any of these other vehicles, um, unless you're right tomorrow, you're going to be wrong. It's very expensive to hold a three-month or six-month option. And by the way, if, if, if you're going to buy a three-month option, if you're that sure you're right, just short the darn thing then. Why are you wasting time with options? If you're that certain about something, you shouldn't be buying options. Just, just short the future contract. Harley, who is selling this volatility? It seems like a very strange, esoteric thing to say, hey, Harley, I want to sell a seven-year contract on a 20-year bond. What, what sort of institutions would be interested in selling this volatility? Um, well, when you should mention this, it, 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 there is actually a very active market for these options and where they come off. Uh, you're, you're, uh, you, people go and type in Formosa, as in the old word for Taiwan, Formosa bond into your Google. And this will describe it in detail. But in a nutshell, insurance companies in Taiwan are allowed to buy US dollar instruments. And they've gone to Wall Street firms and said, hey, ma'am, we're an insurance company. We need income. Like 1% ain't going to do it. Can you give us 4%? We can't take any credit risk. Wall Street said, 
got an idea for you guys. We're going to go take AT&T or Visa or some high uh, an investment grade company, triple B or better. We're going to issue a bond and we're going to go and strap on a gazillion options where this bond could be called in 30 years. It can be called in one month. And we're going to put those options together and give it to you. And we'll give you a 4% coupon, but you have no idea if it's going to last for one month or 40 years. Wall Street then strips that option out and sells it to me. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so it's a bit of financial engineering, but AT&T gets incredible borrowing rates because they get to sell that option out. The guys in Taiwan, they go and get a bond that yields 4% um, with unknown maturity, but pretty sure it won't default on them. Wall Street gets their fees and I get an insurance policy against higher rates. So everyone's happy. Um, this is one of these times where, where financial engineering actually is a public policy good as you move the risk around to various people. Um, uh, other times it's not quite as good. <laughs> um, and believe it or not, the, the, um, the implied volatility of a seven-year option is actually less than that for a five-year option. Um, which sounds crazy because in most other worlds, you see implied vols go up as mm. time goes up. In this case, in the interest rate market, it actually goes down. Why is that? Because who in their right mind wants to go and buy a seven-year option? <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's, you have, what you have is you have massive selling of one-month options on equities, on currencies, on interest rates, right? Our, our guys, like a Two Sigma, selling these options every single day and then hedging them. Remember, in the beginning, implied vol is 10% overrealized. You just capture that little 10% spread. That's real money if you do enough money, if you do it big enough and consistently enough. There's buyers of one and two year options because people tend mm -hmm. to think that's how far out they can see the risk. Uh, a variable annuity issued by an insurance company needs to buy back that risk. The mortgage market, if you take a, a Fannie or Freddie or Ginnie Mae mortgage bond and model up the negative convexity of a mortgage bond, it looks kind of like a two to three year option. So you have buyers of that. So this, that forces the, the term surface up. But when you get out to, to 10 years, five or, or seven, 10 year options, there's no one wants it. As a matter of fact, insurance companies actually would be sellers of that option. Remember, an insurance company wants higher rates because they're taking in money today. They have to invest that money over the course of 30 or 40 years until you die and then pay it back to you as an insurance policy, right? They want higher rates. Lower rates is terrible for them, which is why it's a public policy good for the Fed to allow long rates to rise and the curve to steepen. This is a good thing to happen um, if the Fed can allow it. Yeah, uh, Harley, so the long dated interest rate vol, you view that as attractive convexity as a hedging mechanism. Where do you see opportunities uh, to go long convexity to get exposure to cheap convexity uh, to, to actually you know, make money? You have uh, written on convexitymaven.com a lot of reports uh, since the March 2020 sell off saying actually uh, stocks are kind of a bargain here and you can get long them by uh, get get convexity by buying options on them on the on the euro stocks on the S and P five hundred. Should you just walk us through a little bit about why you find that trade attractive, and do you still find that trade attractive 
despite all the headwinds uh, or perceived headwinds that, that risk assets face? Uh, I just wrote about this in, in detail. Uh, I called it Options 101 for Civilians, uh, civilians <laughs> being non-professionals, so that's not an insult. Um, and um, the idea is that people really don't appreciate that when you buy an option, you're getting this convexity, but you're also you're borrowing money. They can't, it's non-recourse. Can't, they can't take it back from you. I think the reason why you've seen option trading explode, especially for the Robinhood crowd, is that these guys, so-called the, the millennials and younger, have figured out that when you buy an option, you can control huge amounts of assets for a very small price. And if it goes wrong, you lost your small amount of money, not the big money. Um, and so I described a strategy where you might buy a 10% in the money call. So if SPUs, SPY, SPX, SP500, we call it SPUs because it's the SP contract is the, is the ticker for it. And Z is December, so SPZ. Um, it's at, let's call it 470. You could buy the 420, so 50 points, about 10% in the money, uh, for let's call it 85 points, as opposed to 470 points for SPY. That's the most you could lose is the, um, is the, is the 85 points. But on the upside, it'll basically participate one for one, or almost, with it. So you have all the upside and limited downside. You do have the decay involved because you're paying, let's say, 85 points for an option that's 50 points in the money. So you're spending 35 points of time. That's, that's over two years, though. Um, so it's not going to bleed all that much. And it effectively gives you a downside stop out in case the world blows up, but allows you to participate on the upside. But the bigger deal is this. Let's say you have 470 in SPY. You sell the 470. You buy 10 options for 85. Well, now you have $385 left of cash. You would hold it as cash or you could invest it in something else. Uh, what I do is I'll go invest these things into other, you know, uh, interest, higher interest bearing instruments. So maybe a closed end muni fund that yields, you know, 4% triple tax free, which has some volatility, but not all that much. Um, and, and, and therefore that's pretty fancy because in the option formula, you're, there's a borrow cost. And that borrow cost right now on a two-year option is about three-quarters of a point, right? The two-year rate. Um, and in Europe, is it negative? In, in, in Europe is, is crazy. You can do some amazing stuff in Europe. If you, if, if you want exposure to the Dow 50 in Europe, so the SX5, is the ticker. And these options are listed on the, on the Eurex in Frankfurt. It might be challenging to go find it, but, but it is available. Um, I, th I think IB might have them, and if, if not, maybe I'm. They do, yeah, yeah. Interactive brokers, yeah. I mean, this is uh, this is insane. Uh, you can buy. I, I won't go into the details. It's 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 written up in my go to convexitymaven.com and you'll find me writing this in, in more detail. But you can buy a four-year option, a four-year at the money option. Right now, SX5V is I think forty-two hundred. You could buy that option for about eight and a half percent of the value of, of, of the value. 
So you win if it goes up by eight and a half percent over four years. Like, I kind of think it has to do that. And if, and if, it, and if it goes down, you lose eight and a half percent. That's it. Um, this has to do with the, well, you, you, you hit it. It has to do with the fact you're borrowing a negative rate for four years compounded. I mean, you're borrowing at negative 0.6% for four years. That's nuts. Um, and and, um, and you, with limited risk, I mean, uh, this, this is non-recourse borrowing. So if you use options as a way to go and gain exposure to a risk you like, I'm talking longer day at options or leaps, they're all listed, um, it frees up a lot of cash to do things with if you want to, uh, or, or just have limited downside. Harley, we've seen a flattening of the yield curve with the 10-2 spread going from something like uh, 160 basis points to around 80 basis points. So uh, yields on the long end have been falling while yields on the short end have been rising, anticipating uh, rate hikes from the Fed. Can you talk about the relationship between the yield curve and the economy, why an inverted yield curve uh, has a very good track record of predicting recessions, and what, you know, what do you make of the, of the recent flattening? Um, I'm looking for that, what, what that slide is. We have that in there. Um, yep. So what is most predictive? Um, oh, there it is. Uh, uh, number 13, I think it is. Um, turns out the yield curve is the number one by far and away predictor of the economy. Um, uh, why that is, uh, we, I guess we could hypothesize, but it, it predicts it. And so over here in this chart, uh, I wrote in November 2018, I said, I can't tell you why, I can't tell you how, but we're going to be in a recession in March, April of 2020. And at the time, everything was great. The economy is great. It was before the stock market broke in December. Um, all is fine in the world. But uh, the curve inverted. I measured it this way with the uh, five-year, five-year forward rate versus the Fed funds. There's lots of ways of measuring this thing. Um, and uh, so did I predict, and we, we had a recession in March of 2020. Did I predict COVID? Uh, well, guess so. <laughs> um, not really, but I mean, I did say it's going to happen. I don't know how, and, and it did. And um, so um, right now the curve's flattening. Um, it hasn't inverted yet. Uh, why it's flattening is there's a lot of reasons why maybe it's happening. That's unclear. Uh, is, it, is it Fed pressure or maybe it's just, you know, uh, uh, people need dollars uh, for, for, for liability management. Front is going up. We know why the Fed said we might hike rates. So that's why that's why the two is going up. Um, what's anomalous is that it has not been a parallel shift. It's been twos up and bonds down, um, hmm. uh, which uh, so I, clearly nobody has any sympathy for hedge funds. Um, <laughs> but if you want to know what happened, all these big name guys who got rinsed in October, uh, November, um, it was the yield curve, man. Um, uh, the, 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 the curve flattening from the front end going up, that's like bad, maybe. But when you get a twist like that, where two's up, 30's down, that is a nightmare, man. It is almost impossible to hedge a rotation of rates. Um, I mean, if you have two's up by 10, bonds up by five, so a five basis point flattening, we, we can live with that. When you get like one side's red, one side's green, that's, <laughs> no one survives that. Let's have the trade on. Yeah. So, so the, so the well, green line we have here is the five-year, five-year is essentially what the market uh, is 
forecasting for lack of a better word. I know it's not the best way to put it, but what the market is pricing in the five-year rate will be in five years. So if you can imagine a yield curve, at, you know, on the short end of the yield curve, it's uh, the two-year two or the Fed funds rate on the very short end. And then you have the five-year, the 10-year. When the 10-year is lower than the Fed funds rate, that is an inverted yield curve because normally it is upward sloping. So this is just showing those two uh, rates. Harley, can you, you talk about why why the long end going down is such a, a bearish sign? I mean, theoretically, when you see longer-term rates going down, it's because people think that, lo- that all rates are going to go down again. They're trying to lock in that higher rate. So you would buy a 10-year at 1.5% because you think, you know, five years from now, rates are going to be half a percent, and that we've locked in. And you tend to get lower rates when the economy goes in the tank. Um, one, because when the economy goes in the tank, there's less demand for money. Because remember, interest rates are the price of money. People demand money to grow their businesses. Uh, when there's lack of business, there's lack of demand for money, and the price goes down. And also, the Fed tends to take short-term rates down um, when the economy goes in the tank, um, which is what they've done for the last 10 years, basically. Um, and then an inverted curve is really, is, is the Fed, people thinking, oh, the Fed's taking rates up way too high and they're going to create a recession and there are people trying to buy the back end to go and lock in higher rates before they go down uh, when the recession occurs and the Fed jams the front end back down again, which is what you see each time over here. We get this inversion and the Fed just rips the front end on down um, to go and try and, you know, save the day. Uh, I guess... We call it the Powell put, the Fed put, the Bernanke put, the Yellen put. I mean, which is uh, which is you know somewhat true. Mm. Uh, Harley, that that Fed funds rate, the Fed can yank it up if they want to uh, put uh, put put their foot on the brakes. They can take it down to stimulate the economy. That definitely has a lot of power. But then there's quantitative easing, expanding or contracting their balance sheet, buying Treasury bonds, buying mortgage-backed securities. A lot of people, such as Jeff Snyder, think that QE is is something of a psychological game that encourages confidence doesn't have a whole lot of effect. You, in in your most recent note, said you think that the Fed will be slow to raise rates, but will, quote, taper their bond purchases so that long-term rates can rise and steepen the yield curve. Do you think that uh, QE causes steeper yield curves or flattening? And and will tapering cause them to steepen, and why? Uh, Jeff's a bright guy. We have had an interesting dialogue he, he, he um, one, of the, one of the better guys out there at explaining the concept of, you know, rates are going to go down. He, he gives a very good story for that. Um, uh, my, my, and he has plenty of graphs and charts to support his argument. Um, my pushback is, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Um, I, I just, uh, I, 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 I get the story here, but at the end of the day, uh, looking at a, a macro you know, basis. I haven't seen a country produce their coin of the realm, their currency, at a rate faster than inflation, or sorry, faster than the growth of the economy, without inflation happening. Um, it's not in the history books. Maybe it did happen in Babylonian, and, and, and this fast story burned down when the great, you know, Library of Alexandria got toasted. Um, but it seems to me that if you print that money, uh, you get a problem. Uh, and, and if it is the case that you can go and 
print this money and give it to people and not have inflation, then why is there poverty? Just print the money and give it away. I, we don't, we, I mean, it hasn't worked, it seems to me. So I think, I think the reality is it's more of a timing issue than anything else. Um, and the time it takes for these for this money to course through the system and to create, uh, you know, demand bigger than supply, that might take 20 or 30 years. And people don't uh, invest that long. My horizon is two to five, and most people think I'm nuts. A hedge fund, they live, you know, quarterly, or they get fired. So um, uh, it, it could be a timing issue. I mean, remember, it, it, it took 400 years for the Roman Empire to collapse. So um, uh, it, it might well take quite a while for this to happen also. But I, I just don't see how this does not end in tears. But I may well be gone before it happens. Hmm. You could argue that it actually took much longer uh, than that for it to collapse. But that's just when history starts <laughs> starts marking the decline. Um, actually, it's funny. As a, a huge nerd for history, which is why I'll comment on this, uh, I have uh, studied the, the collapse of the Roman Empire like many different times. And actually, depending on what is going on um, contemporarily, like people assign different explanations to it in general. So like when I got taught about it in college, because I was a classics major, uh, it was about not being able to contain, uh, you know, supplies and stuff like that, right? It's just the expanding uh, breadth of the empire and also Christianity. If you looked it up today, you'd actually find that climate change was a big part of it. True story. Um, so it has actually changed since I, uh, since I was taught it. Uh, Harley, you've already been super generous with your time. Um, uh, I, I do. I, you've got so much interesting things going on at uh, Simplify. I know we kind of got into uh, some of the some of the um, structure of your, the products that you offer, but just if folks want to find out more about you, your work, I know you've got a blog. I'm now on your newsletter. Uh, the work that you do at Simplify. If they want to uh, look at some uh, videos that you're putting out on YouTube, what's the best way to just get more information in general? All my stuff is on convexitymaven.com. It's open. You can forward it. You can copy it wherever you want. If you want to get onto my distribution list, I publish episodically, like when I'm in the mood, um, maybe every six weeks, uh, harley at bassman.net. Just send me an email. It's on my site. Um, you can go and do that. I, I would say in general, you know, I joined Simplify, you know, Wall Street 35 years. I joined Simplify because what they're doing is they're taking, we are taking uh, options, long options, and putting them into ETFs. So first-generation ETFs really is taking, what was an ETF? We had a mutual fund where you could invest at four o'clock every day, and that was it. One price, four o'clock, and that was it. The ETF basically is a mutual fund that's on the exchange you could trade all the time. So that's why there's so many different versions of it, because it's different investment styles. What we've done is go to the next step and put options into these funds to basically kind of contour the path that they take, um, which is pretty clever. Um, and, and we do we do it with long options. The, the earlier versions, a lot of people out there did short options where they put a covered call strategy into an ETF, um, which I suppose is fine. But when you do that, you've limited upside, unlimited downside. I'm not sure why you want that strategy. I think you want the other way around. So that, that, that's kind of what we offer is cushioned downside, accelerated upside in the various uh, forms that we do. And um, I, I, finally, I'd say, be very careful of your portfolio if you have negatively convex instruments. So that doesn't mean you're short an option. It means that you have an investment that performs short optionality. So right now, junk bonds are massively negatively convex. You're talking about bonds that yield 
uh, growth, that the spread is at the all-time tights, they can't get much tighter. They can go a lot wider. Um, uh, you're short a huge credit option if you were long any kind of junk bond um, instrument. Um, so I'd, be, I'd watch for that. Uh, REITs, I've been a big proponent for, for, for REITs. I'd be careful about them right now. The curve is flattening. A lot of these REITs, uh, all the REITs, really are levered investments on the yield curve. They borrow overnight money and invest five to ten times as much in long-term money. Curve flattening, um, the two-year rate going up so far is not that bad. But if the Fed actually takes rates up to follow this prediction in the year-dollar market, that's going to go and clip their coupon. So I'd be very cautious of that. And that's why you're seeing a REITs trade below their book value right now is this fear of a flattening yield curve. So watch out for that. So I, I've moved to other types of um, BDCs maybe, or maybe some ML, MLPs to go and uh, have my, uh, my uh, coupon come from. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Harley. Uh, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, pleasure. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, Jack, this was fun too, man. We got to do another one of these uh, dual hosting things soon. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for letting me jump in on this. Harley, I am a huge admirer of your work and it's been a pleasure and honor. I just want to say if anyone really wants to learn about this stuff, which, you know, some people may think they want to learn, but they don't actually like it's, it's tough. It's like it's hard. You know, you got you got to learn. But I could not recommend highly enough uh, Convexity Maven. Um, you, you will learn a lot about about options. Very kind of you. Thank you so much. Awesome. All right, gentlemen. Uh, we'll see you both soon. Harley, thanks again for coming on the show. Cheers. Thanks so much, Harley.